Good morning and welcome to Agape Methodist Church Daily Devotion Podcast. We continue to look at what it means to reflect God's nature. Today I want to talk about being true to our word. What we say conveys what is in us. We must take our word with the utmost seriousness. The Bible tells us that God created all things by His word. More than that, God and His word are inseparable. This is why Jesus is called the Word of God. God is true to His Word. God does not say one thing and mean another. Whatever God says is what He is and what He will do. As the Word is to God, so our Word should be to us who are made in God's image. As God does not say one thing and do another, we who are made in God's image also should not say and do different things. And as God will never break his word, neither should we as God's representatives and reflection. Let us now look at today's passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply, yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Why does God condemn adultery? Because adultery is a breaking of a covenant or an oath. In our day in the marriage vow, the groom and the bride vow to love and to cherish each other. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until they are parted by death. In this vow, the couple pledges to love and to cherish. This goes beyond just staying married. It is a promise that each would cherish, hold dear, treasure the other. And the vow covers all circumstances. For better or for worse acknowledges that circumstances may be averse, and there may be conflict and disagreements, disillusionment and disappointment in the marriage. And the couple still vow to cherish each other. The vow then addresses other difficult circumstances as well, such as sickness and poverty. In such cases, one party is no longer able to perform expected tasks, such as being the breadwinner or continuing to provide sexual satisfaction. In all of these circumstances, both husband and wife pledge to continue to cherish each other. It is not easy for a couple to always cherish one another. It 
is especially not easy for a husband to love his wife. I'm not saying that this is the fault of the wife. But if it were that easy to love our wives, the Bible would not have commanded husbands to love their wives. Look up Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. The fact that there are so many negative jokes about wives is indication that men being dissatisfied with their wives is almost a universal problem. Adultery is the breaking of the vow to love and to cherish. One turns one's affections to another. It is tempting to justify our turning away from our wives. Sometimes we say that our wives are impossible to live with, that they don't treat us as well as other women do, that they don't submit to us, and the list goes on. But it still begs the question, did we not promise? And are we true to our word? Whatever accusations we may level at our wives, the question is really about us. Am I a person who keeps my promises? Do I say things worse, promise things I do not intend to fulfil? But Jesus then goes further. Now then if the problem with physical adultery is the breaking of a vow, then it is more the breaking of a vow in the heart than just a mere action. Loving and cherishing a person may be demonstrated in actions, but it takes place first in the heart. One may pretend to love by lavishing gifts on another, but if the heart is not involved, the act is meaningless. It all boils down to what is in the heart. So if a man lusts after another woman, his heart has already been distracted, or worse, broken faith with his wife. He no longer cherishes her. He is cherishing another in his heart. Jesus' teaching forces us to stop being superficial requires us to look into our hearts. We can no longer go through the motions of acting faithful. We need to look into the heart to see if we are still faithful to our vows. What then can we do? First, pray that God will help us love and cherish our wives. As I mentioned earlier, it is not always easy to do so. This is especially so when we feel our wives are not submitting to us or worse, openly disrespecting us. When we feel that our wives are trying hard to dominate us and we resent their wanting their way at, the, at our expense. Only God can help. But God does help. Begin each morning by asking God to help you love and cherish your wife. Then ask God to help you see beauty and goodness in your wife, perhaps a kindness that she shows, her working hard for the household, we are often so consumed with ourselves that we become blind to the goodness of others. It's not so much that there's no beauty in your wife, it's probably more likely the blindness in your eyes. Pray for God to help you be faithful to your vow to love and to cherish your wife. Second, avoid jokes about wives. These jokes are funny, but they reinforce negative caricatures about wives and tend to justify within yourself your resentment with your wives. Do not, they do not help you to cherish your wife. Third, find ways to avoid temptation. If it is a specific person that you lust after, find ways to reduce interaction or even seeing her. If that is not possible, you could change your approach towards her and take on a more official approach. 
avoid flirtatious and suggestive banter with that person. If the temptation is in particular areas or venues, if possible, avoid those places. One of my mentors shared how he was tempted by a by looking lustfully at a picture of a woman on a billboard. He decided to travel by a different route. Another friend changed his lifestyle altogether. He used to spend much time out with his friends after work. He decided to find creative ways of spending time with family instead. He took his wife out once a week, played with his children on another night, and rode in a Bible study on one other night. If the temptation is on the internet, restrict the use of your computer in private. It also helps to take up a hobby, occupy your mind with something constructive. The point is not merely keeping yourself from committing adultery, whether it is having physical sex or looking lustfully at another woman. We need to go to the root of the issue, which is to keep a vow to love and to cherish our wives. Now let's look at verse 33 to 36. Jesus tells us that what was said long ago was that when we make an oath, we must keep it. And then he says that we should not just be keeping our oaths, rather we should not be making oaths at all. All that is required is simply a yes or a no. Read in the entire context, Jesus was not belittling oaths. What he was saying is that a simple yes or no should be of similar weight and value as an oath. As long as there's something that we say, it should have as much value as an oath. Hence, we cannot say that what we say with an oath is more important or weighty than what we say without an oath. The original intent of God was that oaths would not have been necessary if we were to keep every word that came out of us. The culture these days, sadly, is that there is no need for truth. We think we can tell any number of lies as long as they work for us and we don't get caught. In fact, we treat even our oaths with little respect. We lie under oath, which is why the law has to punish persons who lie in court. Who we are, what we think, has become so separated so disconnected from our words that our words become meaningless. I'd like to close with a story. One day I went to the High Court to observe a murder trial. On the dock was the accused who had been charged with killing his roommate. His roommate was a bully and had abused the accused verbally so much that one morning when the accused woke up, he heard his roommate insulting and making obscene insinuations about the accused mother. This was the last straw. The accused took a rope and strangled his roommate. There were many witnesses, both among the accused neighbours, as well as colleagues who testified that the accused had been badly bullied by his roommate, to a point where the accused could no longer bear with the taunts and insults. The roommate was also the accused supervisor, which made the bullying even more intolerable. The accused's defence was grave and sudden provocation, and under those circumstances was easily proved. What the prosecution did not know was that the accused had left the house after the act, met with a friend, had a coffee with his friend, had cooled down sufficiently. He then returned home some three hours later. 
When he arrived at his room, he saw that his roommate was still alive, was trying to remove the rope from his neck. The accused then approached him and strangled him again, this time killing him. This would have destroyed the accused's defence, but because the prosecution did not know this, the accused's defence appeared to be clear, and he would quite certainly receive a much lighter sentence. However, at Bond the Dock, the accused started telling the story as it had happened. His lawyer kept jumping up to ask the judge to stop the accused from testifying. It was a bizarre sight. The accused was being his own prosecution witness and doing a splendid job for the prosecution and destroying his own defence. Midway through the trial, the hearing took a recess. I noticed someone in the gallery waved to the accused and the accused waved back. So I approached that man who was carrying a Bible to ask why the accused was telling the court facts against himself that the prosecution had not raised. The man with the Bible explained, he was the counsellor for the accused. The accused had given his life to Jesus while waiting for his trial. Just before his trial, the accused approached this counsellor and said this to him. Over these few months, I have received so much love from my Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot dishonour him by lying in court. This man was willing to tell the truth, even at the risk of receiving the death sentence. To him, reflecting the nature of God who loved him was more important than even his life. How important is it that you reflect the nature of God who is true? Would you ask God to transform you with his love as well, so that you will indeed be a reflection of God? If you find it so hard to change, <clears throat> take heart. We all struggle and fail all the time. And so we have lost the right to judge one another. You are as much a failure as I am in reflecting God's goodness. But we have one thing in common. We long, we yearn to be transformed by God. <clears throat> So let's come together, <clears throat> all of us, dismal failures, and keep pressing on to let God transform us by His love. I'd like to close with a very old song in the image of God. In the image of God we were made long ago with a purpose divine here his glory to show but we failed him one day and like sheep went astray thinking not of the cost we his likeness had lost, but from eternity God had in mind a work of Calvary, the lost to find. From his heaven so broad, Christ came down earth to trod. So that men might live again in the image of God. Now that I have 
Savior received, now that I from the cry of my guilt am relieved, I will live for my Lord, not for gain or reward, but for love, thinking of what is grace hath restored. I'll never comprehend redemption's plan, how Christ could condescend to die for man. Such a Savior I'll praise to the end of my days. As I upward onward trod in the image of God. Let us pray. Father, you created us in your image that we may represent you on earth and that we might reflect your nature and your goodness to the world. But how we have failed, how we have fallen short, Lord. Today we think about being true to our word, being true to our vows, even being true to the words that come out with or without vows. We realize how separated our words are from us. We have lost integrity, Lord, to the extent that our words mean nothing. We could say anything true or false and never intend to keep any of it. And God, that is such a distortion of who you are. For you are God who keeps your vows, you are God who keeps your word. Everything you say comes to be. And God, because we have not treated our own words seriously, we often doubt your promises as well, thinking that like us, you don't keep your word either. Sorry for this, Lord. We're sorry for the distorted image that we project, that we reflect to the world. And God, we know that we continue to struggle with lying, with breaking promises. We ask, Lord, that you will day by day transform us with your love. Change our hearts. Teach us how to keep our vows, especially our vows made to our husbands and to our wives. I pray especially for husbands that you will teach us how to keep our vow the promises to love and to cherish our wives. Make this a reality for us, we pray. So God, we place ourselves in your hands, mold us each day. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Hope that you will have a blessed day today. God bless you. We will talk again tomorrow.